Glad to be here with you. Uh, it's been restful um, being able to come here to Wilmington. I love my city, Rocky Mount, but it's good to come to Wilmington and get some rest, right? Um, so uh, I want to get right to it because I'll tell you about building Shalom, my family and stuff like that at the Q&A session right at the very end. We've got a lot to cover. Let me ask you this question. We'll begin with this. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? I'm worried about this sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> what are you worried about? Not, not necessarily right now, but in general, what are you worried about? Here's what I want to do really quick. I want you to listen to the eloquent and the evocative words that Jesus speaks to our past, our present, and our future worries. From Matthew 6, 25 through 32. You can either listen or turn there. But hear what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the, bear, the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I will not uh, bother to exegete such clear words, uh, but I wish to reassert and actually rest upon a few statements that Jesus says here. First being this. Do not be anxious about your life. <laughs> now, if you have lived life at all, and you're not naive, those are not easy words to hear, nor are they easy words to obey, right? We got monkeypox, for heaven's sake, coming around, right? <laughs> Do not be anxious for your life. And the question that Jesus asked after it is no easy to answer. He says, is not life more? Is not life more, to sum it all up, is not life more than the things that we worry about? It's a clever question, but it's also a diagnostic question. Because the things we often worry about are the things that consume our lives and our bodies. But yet, our worries are like a symptom that help us identify the greater sickness that is within us, within our hearts. Our worries, they actually serve as like a compass that helps us see where our hearts are directed. And it identifies the things that our hearts are seeking. So here's the question, the prevailing question for today. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? If you don't know, a better diagnostic question is, what are you most worried about? What are you most worried about? Your personal health, your retirement, your wealth, your career, your popularity, your beauty, how your family's viewed, legacy, climbing the ministry or the corporate ladder, finishing or starting a degree, getting married. What are you most worried about? Because the things that you are primarily worried about, beloved, are the things you are primarily seeking. 
If you're going to follow Jesus, if you and I are going to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying to us from these words this morning, if you're going to follow me, there are priorities. You don't get to choose how to follow me. No, no. You follow me. And if you're going to follow me, you don't get to prioritize what you seek because the priorities have already been set for what you shall seek. You are to seek first the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness. Listen to these sweet words. In summary, Jesus is saying to us, follow me, and I will lead you into a life where you never have to worry. (laughs) Doesn't that sound so alluring? Not only sounds fascinating, my friends, it's attractive, and it's also truly true. He says, follow me, and and, and, and I will will lead you into a life where you never have to worry. Doesn't that sound (laughs) so restful? It is restful, for his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. When we seek first the kingdom of God in all of its righteousness, But what is this kingdom of God? (laughs) What is this righteousness? What is it that we are looking to seek? And how do we actually seek it? Thankfully, God actually, he helps us. Jesus, inside of these words, he's actually going to tell us how, not only what we shall seek, but how we should seek it. Um, And we're going to see that today in the Gospel of Luke through this fascinating conversation with Jesus and this lawyer. Jesus provides for us actually an example of the Samaritan, good Samaritan. And with that example, we're not just going to look at it. I want to challenge you to live like that example. Now, I want to put this disclaimer here. I am not preaching a works-based salvation. I just want to put that here at the the beginning. I know we're saved by grace alone through Christ alone, but there's different types of sermons. There are some sermons where it's meant to reassure you of the anchor of your faith. There are times there are some sermons where we need to test the faith that's within you, right? As uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves and see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. That's what this is today. So if you ever get the point inside of the sermon where you think I'm preaching workspace, you can steer away from that. Just know we're testing uh, the faith. Here's the main idea I want you to grasp this morning. Don't just look at the Samaritan. Live like the good Samaritan. Let's pray real quick. Father, I am so thankful to you for your grace and your mercy. I'm thankful for this congregation and that you brought them here today. I pray, Lord, provide us the bread we need from your word this morning to get through this week, to even begin our week. And uh, Lord, I pray, allow this word to be something that challenges us, convicts us, comforts us. Lord, that we may seek your kingdom in all of its righteousness. Holy Spirit, do the work in the hearts that these words of mine cannot do and be glorified through them in Jesus name. Amen. Luke chapter 10 verse 25. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up. Let's pause right there because we're entering into a conversation. We got to know who the character is inside of this conversation. Who is this lawyer? That's the question. But before we even answer that, I, I want you to think of someone for a moment that you know without a shadow of a doubt, you are certain they have eternal life and they're saved. Put that person in your brain. That person for me would be my mom. 
I can't think of a more devoted follower of Jesus since I was a baby, man. My mama was taking me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When I got older, uh, she would take me out from 9 to 1 p.m. every Saturday morning to knock on doors and tell people about Jesus. That's what my church did growing up. She's still doing that today, right? Um, the only reason why I did that, I don't know how many gospel conversations of people I prayed with in that time, but that was 19 years of my life. Um, and, but the only reason why I did that, because I saw my mom do it, and my mom led me to men that did it. And I continue to do it. And she's still doing it faithfully today. I've known, I know nobody that actually prays like my mama. She is a praying woman. My wife has been able to go. We, we stayed at their house when we go visit Virginia Beach. And man, she can hear her in the morning wailing in prayer. Uh, it, it's an experience. Nobody prays like my mom. I, I don't know of anybody that's more of a devoted follower of Jesus than my mom. Now, if Jesus came in here today and told me, that my mom did not have eternal life, and she wasn't saved, first, I, I would be devastated. But then second, all respect to King Jesus, but we're going to have some words <laughs> because I've seen her life, right? I've watched her do all that, she, that she's been doing all these years, praying, devoted to following Jesus. This is the type of situation, guys, that we're walking into in this situation with the lawyer. Do you feel that a little bit? This crowd is listening in on this conversation, and they look at this lawyer the same way I would look at my mama. They have all the same evidence. And better yet, let, let, let's give somebody that would connect a little bit more. If Billy Graham came in here, and Jesus, Billy Graham, were having a conversation inside of this, inside of this uh, worship area, and he, he asked Jesus inside of that conversation, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's nobody in this room that, think, that thinks Billy Graham is asking that question for himself. He's an evangelist, for heaven's sakes. He's asking that question so Jesus can tell them the sweet gospel, right? He's not asking for himself. But imagine if Jesus said, hey, Billy, you don't even have eternal life. That would bring shock, uh, shocking nature to us, wouldn't it? We would probably even want to justify, hey, Jesus, do you know who Billy Graham is? Like, you got to feel the weight of who the lawyer is in order to receive the wisdom that Jesus is about to give in this parable. The question is, who is this lawyer? Let me paint a picture for you. Every village would have had a scribe or a lawyer inside of it. They would have knowledge of the law, and they would draft legal documents for people inside the village, contracts for marriage, uh, loans, inheritances, uh, mortgages, um, the sales of land. Um, so in some sense, this lawyer is someone who upholds the common good of society. He's an upstanding citizen. On top of that, the lawyer is not only one who upholds the common good of society, but he also studies and memorizes the entire law, the first five books of the Bible. Anybody in here done that? If you have, come see me afterwards. I really want to talk to you. But he's that devoted. He's devoted to the scripture. He is a believer in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures, without a shadow of a doubt, more than probably most of us. On top of that, he not only studies and memorizes the law, he practices the law faithfully. The lawyer is a Bible-believing man. He's a moral man. He's an upstanding citizen. And on top of that, the lawyer is zealous for his nation, something we often miss. This nation that was unambiguously and undoubtedly birthed by God himself. They really were one nation under God. He was zealous for his nation. He's a patriot in the truest sense, which means he was also a man of good politics. You see, we tend to fail to understand that the piety of the lawyer and the scribes and Pharisees in that time 
was based on the law of the land or the law of the nation. Their piety was synonymous with patriotism. They are pious um, because they are trying to, if you will, make Israel great again, quite literally. They are pious because they're looking for God to restore their nation. So the lawyer is an upstanding citizen. He's a moral man. He's a Bible-believing man. He is zealous for his country. He's a patriot. If we were to transport the lawyer onto American soil today, we would love the lawyer. We would look up to the lawyer. We would desire to be like the lawyer. I have mentors that are like this lawyer. On top of that, though, gets even better. The lawyer is concerned about eternal life. He's concerned about the kingdom of God, which leads to the question he has in verse 25. The lawyer stood up to put him to test, not, not to get an answer for himself, but he put him to test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we have to understand the question before we move forward. We tend to think of the phrase eternal life to mean, you know, an amount of time, um, forever life, although it's nothing less than that. It's far more. The lawyer and Jesus would have understood the phrase differently. Um, to them, it meant, according to uh, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, he, he, he says it, it's like a new life in a new period in a new age. And so this lawyer and Jesus, quite literally, what he, what he is asking is, how can I enter into the life of the new age that is coming? And so when I say new age, don't think of it in a weird way. Think of it like the Elizabethan age versus the Victorian age in English history. Or in basketball history, think of the Michael Jordan era versus the LeBron era. Michael Jordan era is the greatest era of all time, hands down, mic drop. Um, so that's just a different type of history and a specific type of history. Or it's like a dynasty, right? It, it marks a certain kind of era in history. That's how Jesus and the Jews thought of human history on earth, actually. There's an age and an era where suffering and bondage and to other rulers would actually come to an end. And there will be a new age, a new era in history on earth where the Messiah would come. He would save his people from their suffering, their pain, their bondage, and he would finally rule the world. This would begin the new age and era of everlasting joy and peace where Christ would rule on earth. That's what eternal life meant. So the lawyer is asking, what must I do to enter into that era? where the, king of the, the throne of King David is restored and the Messiah reigns and rules on earth. How do I enter into the coming kingdom of God? And Jesus responds in verse 26. He says this. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 27, he, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly want a cookie, right? It's like, <laughs> you got it right. No, but in all seriously, what a shocking response. He does not say, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. There's nothing you can do. No, let God be true. Every man a lie. He said, you have answered correctly. You have answered correctly. What you must do to inherit eternal life or the coming kingdom of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly what you must do to inherit eternal life. It's already written back inside of Deuteronomy in the Shema. It's written in the law for you what you must do to inherit eternal life, my, my friends, this morning. It doesn't change for us today. In order for us to inherit eternal life and enter the kingdom of God, we must love the Lord our God with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, and love our neighbors as ourselves. You have answered correctly, he says. 
But what this lawyer must do has not yet been done. He says, you answer correctly, and at the end of verse 28, he says, do this. <laughs> you go do this, and you will live, implying that it already hasn't been done. And this is where the offense subtly creeps into the conversation. The lawyer's offended. It's why the text immediately says in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself. Be like Billy Graham asking that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking for everybody else to be evangelized. And Jesus says, you don't have it. Wait, wait, me? I wasn't asking for me, <laughs> right? He wants to justify himself. If you're not wanting now to want to justify the lawyer as you read the text, we're not reading it right. You have to feel the weight of who the lawyer is in order to receive the wisdom that Jesus is about to give. So who is the lawyer? Well, the last thing you need to know is he is someone who believes he loves God, and he loves his neighbor. He really believes that. This lawyer and the scribes and Pharisees, they lived. You, you, in order to live how they had to live, you have to prioritize. I mean, you would believe you were prioritizing God in that sense. He really believes that he puts God above everything else. Not perfectly. He's no idiot, but primarily. He thinks he really loves God and his neighbor. He lives in a culture where he is taught within a tradition, and, and according to that tradition, according to everything he knows and the wisdom that's been passed down to him, he genuinely believes that he loves God and his neighbors. It's a scary reality, my friends. He really believed it. It's why Jesus would later say to his disciples when he talks to them about future persecution. He says, people like this lawyer in John 16 too, he says, they will put you out of their synagogues, and indeed an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they are offering service to God, not any God, the God of the scriptures. He really believed he loved the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, his mind, and soul. He thought he loved his God and his neighbors. You've got to realize the people who crucified Jesus were not pagans. They were people who thought they were doing service for God. They were people like this lawyer who thought they loved God and loved their neighbors. Don't take yourself off the hook here, because what this teaches us is that we can genuinely believe that we're living in the reality of the truth and yet be denying the truth. What this teaches us is we can genuinely believe that we're living in the reality of the way and yet be denying the way. What this teaches us is that we can genuinely believe that we're living in the reality of the life and yet be denying the life. And as a result, we neither seek nor enter the way, the truth, and the life the kingdom of God. And we're let asking the question like the lawyer, who's my neighbor then? But yet, how do I enter and seek the reality of the way, the truth, and the light, this kingdom of God? Now that I hope that we have felt the weight a little bit of who the lawyer is, I think we're ready to see what the wisdom of God is here. And I hope that it will be revealed to us that what it looks like actually to, to seek first the kingdom of God through this parable we're about to read. Because Jesus wants to take us from the abstract intellect of what it means to actually seek the kingdom of God. As Seuss Lewis once said, he wants to bring us to understand and taste it like honey and be embraced by it like a bridegroom. And our thirst can be quenched. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. We have to rest here for a moment. Before we see the marvelous wisdom of God, we have to see the folly and the wisdom of man. We all know the story. But why did the priest pass by? A priest who would guard and protect the temple at night. A priest who would make sacrifices for the people of God before God. A priest who, who would be deemed the most personally pious person in society. Surely, a priest would stop and help this man. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. We don't know why he passed by, but we know who passed by. And if the priest was to pass him by, it was without a doubt, the Levite follows the priest, that he was going to pass him by. The story intentionally devolves. And either way, you got both figures, the priest and the Levite, who would be considered the most personally pious people in society, who pass by their brother, leaving him for dead. You know what this reminds me of? <laughs> Cain. One who performed piety before the Lord, but practiced unrighteousness towards his brother, leaving him dead in the field. In some ways, we're no different. We bear the fruit of Cain in our heart. It is a murderous fruit of Cain to praise God on Sundays and condemn and curse your neighbors on social media Monday through Saturday. It's a murderous fruit of Cain in our hearts to express joy in the house of God on Sundays and be jealous of our neighbors and consumed by envy Monday through Saturday. It is the murderous fruit of Cain to practice generosity towards God on Sundays and consume luxury upon luxury while neglecting our poor and hungry neighbor Monday through Saturday. It is the murderous fruit of Cain to practice impartiality before God on Sundays, but practice partiality and partisanship Monday through Saturday. It is the murderous fruit of Cain who, like the priests and the Levite, passed by their, their dying brother on the other side. Listen to me this morning. It is possible to have the piety of the priests and the Levite and be a murderer of your brother and sister in your own heart. Personal piety is not proof enough of having love of God and neighbor. It can be merely re religious performance before God that actually neglects neighbor, and God hates that. That's why he says things in like Isaiah 1, 13 through 15. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, these celebrations and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, the celebrations they would host, and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide. When, you, when your worship is spread out your hand, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
Amos 5, 21 through 24, God continues on speaking to these, these pious people in this way. I hate and I despise your religious festivals, these, uh, these celebrations you host for me. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Listen this morning, personal piety does not prove you love your neighbor. Let me, let me bring it more home to us what that looks like. Being disciplined in reading your Bible doesn't prove you love your neighbor. Being disciplined in prayer does not prove you love your neighbor. Being at every church gathering and every small group does not prove you actually love your neighbor. Knowing the depths of Christian theology and orthodoxy does not prove you love your neighbor. And neither does it prove you actually love God. The priests and Levite did all those things. And even better than us, more devoted. On the contrary, loving your neighbor proves you love God. It's why John would say in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not... He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Listen, you can be personally pious and relationally wicked. Personal piety only scratches the surface of Christianity. And to never get deeper than that personal piety in your faith means you only possess a condemnable faith. It's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in Matthew 20, 23, uh, 23, 23. You hypocrites, for you tied mint, dill, and cumin. You got all the religious stuff right. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, the more relational things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. God have mercy on us, if that is us this morning. The personal piety of the priest and the Levite only begin to scratch the surface of our faith but they never reach the depths of the substance of our faith. And it's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But let me encourage you this morning. <laughs> there is a righteousness <laughs> that exceeds the personal piety of the priest and Levite. There, there is a righteousness that takes us from the surface of our faith down into the depths of the substance of our faith. There, there is a righteousness that goes from the shallow surface of the stream to justice that rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And Jesus wants to lead us there. He's leading this lawyer there to the reality of this river of justice and righteousness so we could taste it like honey. Be embraced like, like a bridegroom and, and our thirst could be quenched. You want to go there with me? Let's go to verse 33. <laughs> he says, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. You see the stark contrast between the Levite and the priest in this beautiful picture here. Shallow waters of personal piety cannot produce the depth of beauty and wisdom and love of neighbor displayed inside of these verses. 
I want you for a moment to look at the beauty and the wisdom of the way. It says in verse 33, as he journeyed. Those words can't be taken lightly. He's seeking something. He's, he's heading somewhere. So it gets back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What are you seeking? Notice the path of his journey. It is, it's a dark road of danger. People are beaten. They are stripped. They are left for dead. You see, participating in the kingdom of God looks like entering into vulnerable and unprotected places. Being sent, as Jesus would say to his disciple, on a journey as a sheep among wolves. Right? A terrifying picture. But... Though it may look like on our journey we've been sent into an unprotected place, we know that wherever we go, even to the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is our dwelling place. And so as the psalmist states in uh, Psalm 19, 9 through 11, he says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near you in your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. What are you seeking? Comfort? Security? Safety? Or are you on a journey where you must trust the Lord for your security and safety? Because participating in the kingdom of God, it looks like entering into vulnerable and unprotected places, being sent on a journey as sheep among wolves but not being worried about our life because even in the midst of death, the author of life protects our lives and he provides us with abundant life. I want you to look at the beauty and the wisdom of the way. Verse 33, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. What are you seeking? The wisdom of the Samaritan, it contrasts the wisdom of the priest and Levite. They all saw him but only one was moved with compassion for him. And what we learn is the wisdom of the priest and the Levite is actually foolishness. Because they were on a journey to worship. Leaving their brother dead on the side of the road. They're on their way to worship without love. A faith of personal piety without compassion and sympathy for one's neighbor is dead. And it leaves our neighbors left for dead. A faith of personal piety that doesn't have the, uh, help one's neighbor because it is based in comfort and convenience is dead. And it leaves our neighbors left for dead. Because it is a faith without love. Without love. Paul says that we can minister with tongues of angels, but our words will be wasted noise. Without love, Paul says that we can grasp the heights of all knowledge and mystery in Christian orthodoxy and not know the essence of that knowledge in orthodoxy. Without love, Paul says that you can have faith that can move mountains, but have a faith that really never amounts to nothing. Without love, Paul says that you can give all your money to the poor and end up nothing but poor. Without love, Paul says that you can die a sacrificial death for others, but it will not profit others. Without love. Personal piety is only empty vanity without love. What are you seeking this morning? The vain emptiness of personal piety? Or are you on a journey where love leads you to true relationality and neighborly fidelity? That's what this reality looks like. We're going to look more into that. Look at the beauty and the wisdom of the way. In verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
<laughs> what are you seeking this morning? Because participating in the kingdom of God looks like going from the shallow waters of personal piety, exemplified in the priest and Levite, to the depths of the rivers of righteousness, exemplified in the Samaritan, through the ministry of relational healing. That is, with love, we begin to seek. We begin to go after the deep and the hard work of healing and restoration of relationships. As we see the Samaritan, he goes down and he bounds up their wounds. This healing work is actually a heavenly work. It's, it's his kingdom come and his, his will being done uh, on earth. It, it's why when Jesus preached the kingdom of heaven, he followed it by bringing healing that only happens in heaven. He would cause the deaf to hear. He would cause the blind to see. He would cause lepers to be cleansed. He would cause the dead to be resurrected. Because in that context, to heal the sick was to heal relationships. In that context, to be deaf was to be deemed cursed and thus cut off and hurt from relationships. To be blind was to be cursed and thus cut off and hurt from relationships. To be lame was to be cursed and, and thus cut off and hurt from relationships. To be a leper was to be deemed cursed and thus cut off and hurt from relationships. And in any context... To be dead is to be cut off and hurt from relationships. Jesus would heal the sick to heal relationships. What are you seeking? Are you running away from the hard work and the hurt of reconciling relationships? My friends, listen this morning. You you know you have entered and you are seeking the kingdom of heaven when the king of heaven begins drawing people near you and begins healing relationships around you. Look at the beauty of and the wisdom of the way. Verse 34, then he sat him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. What are you seeking? Because participating in the kingdom of God looks like hospitality. An inn was not like a hotel room, like we're staying in a very nice one right now. When, when, when people would travel, they would travel to places where they were close to their relatives and they would stay with those relatives, which was an inn in that time. So the picture here is is beautiful. A family welcoming in a stranger into their home, into a place where they are cared for, where they find rest, and they have a place at the table, figuratively and literally. It's the beautiful picture that David paints with his words, that our Lord in the midst of hostile territory, he sets a table before us in the presence of our enemies. What a beautiful and an astounding picture That is the picture that that, that we see here, my friends. A a picture of friends eating and and, and feasting with one another. A picture where people are welcome in as family and friends. It's a more holistic picture of what's happening with the Samaritan taking him to the inn and taking care of him. The beauty and the wisdom of the way of the Samaritan. Let me sum it up for you really quick. Is this picture in this, this vision. It's a picture of healing and hospitality within hostile territory. It's a beautiful picture. What are you seeking? The American dream or this vision of healing and hospitality? Finally, let's take one last glimpse at the beauty and the wisdom of the way in verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
What are you seeking? Because participating in the kingdom of God looks like forgiveness forever. For families, friends, and foes. The Samaritan forgives him of his past, his present, and his future debts. But ultimately, this this picture of the Good Samaritan, it's not the perfect picture of the beauty and the wisdom of the way. Jesus on the cross is the perfect picture of the beauty and the wisdom of the way. This is probably the hardest part of following Jesus into that beauty and wisdom of the way. To forgive those who are indebted to us, who owe us. Listen to me this morning. Whoever sinned against you, they are indebted to you. They owe you. They owe you an apology. They owe you restoration. They owe you uh, restitution. They, they, they owe you. Jesus is saying they are indebted to you, but the beauty and the wisdom of the way says we forgive. Jesus, the good Samaritan, not only reveals the beauty and the wisdom of the way, he also himself leads the way and provides the way for us to follow him. I don't know how he did it. In his most lonely state, in his most betrayed state, his most despised and shamed state, where he's wronged by the world, he's wronged by his closest friends, he's wronged by his intimate friends, he's he's wronged by the guilty, he's wronged by everyone. And yet he says, Father, forgive them. Lifted up on the cross is not only the ultimate payment for our sins to enter into the beauty and the wisdom of the way, but lifted up before our eyes as well is our ultimate example of how we are to seek the beauty and the wisdom of the way. By forgiving the debts of those who have sinned against you. But also, when a brother and sister in Christ has sinned against you, if Christ has already paid their debt, he's already paid their creditors. Because he said these words. Let me rush to close with them. It is finished. <laughs> what? is finished. I quote that great preacher, Gardner Taylor, who says, don't, don't, don't mind me, the chocolate preacher might get a little excited right now. Uh, uh, those words that chill, send a chill down our spine. Foreordained, predestined from the foundation of the world, that exact echo of that word found in the letter of Revelation where it says, a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, it is finished. No longer cut off. It is finished. The great load of human sin has been lifted. It is finished. The long journey is over. It is finished. The cornerstone has been laid in the edifice. It is finished. The crooked way has been made straight. It is finished. The load has been lifted. It is finished. The old account has been settled. It is finished. The exile has returned to his citizenship. It is finished. The prodigal has returned home. It is finished. Amen. Oh, my sin. Oh, and the bliss and the glorious thought of this. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is finished. Amen. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Revenge? 
or the fullness of forgiveness and mercy that lead us to the streams of righteousness and justice that flow like a river. Look at the beauty and the wisdom of the way. Spare me but a moment as I rush to close. Verse 36 through 37. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. As we've just seen, the beauty and the wisdom of the way it's like Jesus on the cross, the one who showed us mercy, as Jesus is telling this lawyer, the one who said it was finished. There's no more debt to be paid, which leads back to the question, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? What the beauty and the wisdom of the way in this journey of the Samaritan teach us is that though we are on this dangerous and dark road in this dark world, is that in a world full of darkness where we cannot see, he provides light so we can see. In a world that is full of death where there is no life, he provides us resurrection power and gives us life. In a world full of hate where there is no love, he provides love that comes down from above. In a world that is full of depression where there is no joy, he provides an overflowing fountain of joy. In a world full of condemnation where there is no grace, he condemns condemnation and he gives us grace. In a world full of sin where there is no spirit, he pays our debts of sin and he gives us his spirit. In a world, amen, that offers us nothing along our journey, he provides everything we need so we never have to worry when we seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. One last time, what are you seeking? Jesus is calling us this morning, not just to look at that vision that we just saw, but to live in that vision. Not just to look at the Good Samaritan, but to live like the Good Samaritan, who provided the way for us to seek first the kingdom and all of its righteousness, and to experience the deep rolling rivers of righteousness and never failing streams of salvation to practice the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I, I, I close with this question. Do you desire to seek and to live in that reality where you can taste it like honey, be embraced by it like a bridegroom, and your thirst for righteousness will be quenched? Go and do likewise. Let me pray for us real quick.